So in this room are more than four campuses. Obviously, we have our Yonsei University students, our Iwa students, our Seoul National students, and our KU, Korea University, as well as many other universities that are represented here. Okay? And uh, I know most of you guys are used to worshiping at your campus large group. But tonight and for this weekend, we're going to come together. And in order for us to come together, I need you guys to get comfortable. So look at the person to the right and to the left and say, listen, I like you. Okay? I want you guys to get comfortable, okay? Because the reason why you guys need to get comfortable with one another is I'm not interested in just a personal experience for you guys. This is about what God is going to do with this group. Now, trust me, God's desire and his heart for you is very personal. But the manifestation of his love and what he wants to sustain after this retreat is very corporate. This is about you, but it's not all about you. And that w- that's the reason why you guys need to get comfortable with one another because you're about to journey together through this retreat. And I want to encourage you guys, don't do it by yourself. Okay, we're here together. You're not at home listening, uh, you know, to me via podcast if you are, bless you. <laughs> but, you know, you're at this retreat. You're physically here right now. And part of the blessing that's in this corporate body here is being able to relate to one another and manifest Christ to one another. And so if you're interested in going through this retreat under the radar and by yourself, I'm sorry, I have really bad news for you. It's not going to happen. God wants you to be blessed, but he wants you to be a blessing. And so I want to encourage you guys throughout this retreat, I want you to be reminded of the people beside you. Okay, I want you to listen and hear what God is saying for your life, but I want you to also engage those around you because trust me, God wants you to play a big role in your neighbor's life. Do you guys believe that? You know, there's like a sound coming out here somewhere. You guys know what that's all about? Is there a way we can shut it? Oh, yes. Maybe we can shut this one off too? Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Adam. Let's give it up for Adam. (laughs) Um, Adam is one of our volunteer staff. Here tonight we have uh, our Emmaus staff, obviously, is with us, as well as our amazing campus directors. You guys love your campus director? You know, KU wasn't showing that much love to Eunice when she was up here. And like, KU... Y'all love Eunice? Okay, we got to work on that. We got to work on that. Um, But not only do we have our awesome CDs and we have our amazing Emmaus staff, but we have a lot of people that have joined us this weekend to volunteer uh, to serve you guys. Okay, so we have a bunch of volunteer staff. So if I can have the volunteer staff, you guys could just stand to your feet. I want you guys to just stand up. All the volunteer staff, stand up. And let's just give them a warm... All right, these are guys that paid. Let me repeat that. They paid money to come to this retreat to serve you. 
Yeah, I know. Wow was right. Okay. <laughs> Not only did they pay money to come to this retreat to serve you, but they have been praying. A lot of them have been fasting. A lot of them have been pouring out their hearts to the Lord for you. Okay. Now, the theme of this retreat is light it up. And the reason why we themed it Light It Up is because we're very much interested in the fire falling. I don't know about you, but I don't really like lukewarm. I'm not interested in anything that's lukewarm. When I order a meal, when I want a drink like tea or coffee, I don't want a lukewarm drink. I don't want a lukewarm meal. I want something piping hot. And that goes the same for my life. I don't want to live a lukewarm life. Just the everyday, go through the motions. No, I have a desire to be on fire. And I believe that God's desire is for you to be on fire as well. We named this retreat Light It Up because we believe that God's not interested in you living your lukewarm lives. He's interested in setting you aflame for him. And trust me, there's no other way to live. So my question to you tonight, before I even start my message is, are you on fire for God? If you take a good, clear, sober look at your life right now, could you answer that question with a yes? Am I on fire for God? I'm not asking you if you believe in God. I'm not asking you if you go to church on Sundays or if you come out to Emmaus. I'm not asking you how faithful you've been to familias. It's not the question I'm asking you. I want you to ask yourself, am I on fire for God? God is not interested in us living a lukewarm life. He wants you to be on fire. Come on, turn to your neighbor and say, I want to be on fire. But Eunice said it really well. She goes, you know, we expect God to come on fire. Some of you guys are just like observing, like, let's see what happens. Let's see what God can do. God, show me what you have. Some of you guys are hungry, man. I need breakthrough. I need this fire in my life. Some of you guys are hungering for it. I don't know where you guys are at, but I know where God wants you to be. And starting from tonight all the way to tomorrow evening, we're going to go on a journey to be set on fire for God. And the only way to be set on fire or to see God's fire come is just like Eunice said, you need to give him something to burn. What are we laying down? What are we offering God to burn? You ask God, give me the fire, show me the fire. God, I want all of you. But what are you giving to him? How much of you are you allowing God to speak into your life? How much of you are you allowing God to be your Lord? Guess what? He's not just interested in being your savior. He wants to be your Lord. He wants to rule your life. He wants to lead you. He wants you to abide in him. Jesus wants it all. You may call it greedy, but he wants it all. He's not interested in a part of you. He's not interested in 15%, 25%. He wants every single bit of you. 
And in, in order for you to see the fire come upon your life, you have to lay down your life first. You know, fire is used a lot in scripture. And there's one story in particular that I want to talk about tonight. I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Kings. And we're going to look at chapter 18. And we're going to look at verses 20 all the way to 40. And this is a story of the prophet Elijah confronting uh, the prophets of Baal. So to give you a little bit of background before we go into the story, for about 80 years, northern Israel have been living this mixture kind of worship. They'd worship God, and then they go to worship, you know, the, the gods of Canaan. They'd worship God again, and then they worship the gods of Canaan. You know, back and forth, idolatry, mixing with worshiping God, back to idolatry, back and forth, back and forth. It was this mixture. And the gods that they were worshiping other than the one true God were Canaanite gods, gods that they learned about when they entered into the promised land. It was the gods of the people that were there. And their 80 years of disobedience to the Lord has resulted at this point a three-year drought. And the land had not seen rain, any water for three years. And so it was a really trying situation, desperate situation. People were desperate for rain. It was this drought. You know, what's interesting is a lot of you guys are coming here tonight feeling just like that. And when you take a, a moment to reflect on your Christian life or when you take a moment to reflect on your relationship with God, one word that you can use right now is drought. You feel dry. You feel like it's been a long time since you sense the presence of God. You feel disconnected. Not all of you guys, I'm saying some of you guys in this room have been feeling like you've been in a drought. And often when we're in droughts, we tend to blame God. Like, where are you? You walk in a service and you see people crying and you're like, how come she's crying? And I don't feel a single thing. The reason why the Israelites were facing a drought in this moment was 80 years of disobedience. And let me just suggest something to you. I'm the type of preacher that doesn't, I'm not really that nice, okay? In person, I'm very kind. But when I preach, I don't really hold back. So you're going to have to bear with me. I'm doing this in love. You all with me? One of the reasons why you're dry right now is because you've been living in disobedience. And God has asked something from you. He's asked something of you. And you said no. And the moment you say no, all of a sudden, boom, a part of your heart closes. And then you say, no, God, not now, maybe later, thank you. I remember when I was in high school, and I was a believer since I was 12. But I remember wanting to do what everyone else was doing. I was desperate to just be free. And I remember thinking in my mind, God, I'm just going to while out for like 10 years. Just give me 10 years. <laughs> 10 years, Lord. And after 10 years, I'm going to come right back to you. I'm going to get on my knees, and I'm going to, Lord, forgive me, and I'm just going to receive your grace. It's going to be all good. But just 10 years, I'll be right back. 
10 years, I had this moment. God was like, Aaron, give, give all of you to me. And I was like, okay, in 10 years, I'll do that. And immediately, slowly but surely, my heart began to close. And my walk with the Lord became drier and drier and drier and drier. Many of you guys are in a drought right now, not because God has abandoned you, but you abandoned God. Here was Israel in this terrible condition. And God sent prophet Elijah into the scene because of his desperate love for Israel. Despite Israel's disobedience, he, can't, he couldn't give up. He made a covenant with his people. And he was intent on fulfilling his covenant. So here comes Elijah. He's here to confront King Ahab, who was the king at this time. And King Ahab was like the evilest of all evil kings that reigned Israel. In fact, in uh, chapter 17, it says in verse 30, and Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Okay, this king was not down with God. In fact, he married a woman named Jezebel who was a, a, a supporter of Baal, and she supported like 450 prophets of Baal or Baal or Baal. I'm going to say Baal. And so Israelite, at this time, northern Israel, it was in massive confusion. They were serving gods other than the God that they knew. And so Elijah comes, and he's like, all right, let's do this. I'm going to meet with this king, and I'm going to confront all of these prophets. And that's where it starts in verse 20. So look with me. So Ahab sent all the people to Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. It was kind of like a showdown. We were about to have a fight. And everybody gets gathered. Verse 21, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Let's just pause there. How long will you go limping between two opinions? I wonder if you are completely sold out for God right now where you're sitting, if you've given him your all or if you've been limping back and forth. See, Baal was, Baal was one of many gods, but one of the, the, the things that he represented was this God of the harvest, fruitfulness, and the God of fertility. And so here are the Israelite people not turning to God the Father, but turning to this other idol in order to fulfill fruitfulness. I wonder how many of us in this room have we been teetering and tottering, looking to other things to make us fruitful, looking to other things to make us satisfied. And prophet Elijah comes and says, how long will you go limping between those two opinions? Let's get it straight. If you believe in God, serve him. And if you believe in Baal, serve him. Who are you going to follow? You can't serve two masters. It's only one. A person that serves two masters is greatly confused and will live life completely torn. And the people did not answer him with a word, kind of like what you're doing with me right now. Silence. Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. 
And I will prepare the other bull, and I will lay it on the wood, and I will put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Meaning, all right, let's do this. And then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. As in, all right, you go first. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal until the morning, until the noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But watch this. There was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself. Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Verse 28, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. That's intense, huh? Can you imagine this scene? Here's prophet Elijah, one man, and he's standing off against 450 prophets of Baal. This is the God that Israelites were beginning to turn to, to answer their cries, to answer their satisfaction, to answer their prayers. Here's this other God, 450 men, and they're going buck wild, dancing around the altar, cutting themselves, because that's actually what they normally did in order to worship Baal. They would cut themselves. Sometimes they would sacrifice babies. Sometimes they would, I mean, they would have sexual uh, rituals in order to worship Baal. 450 men going crazy. And here's prophet Elijah saying, dude, I think your God uh, is going out to the bathroom because obviously he's not answering. They cried out, cried out, cried out, cried out. No answer. I don't know about you, but I've turned to other things other than God. And I've cried out for those things to fill me up. And I've cried out for those things to satisfy me. And I've cried out for those things to satiate the hungers that I was carrying within me. And I would get no answer. There was a time where I rejected God. I turned away from him purposely. I was like, God, you know what? I don't know about us. Ten years later, I'll come back. Thinking that I was free without realizing it. But I was worshiping other idols. Worshiping relationships worshiping my myself, putting myself absolutely first, worshiping my career or my future, the things that I wanted, worshiping drugs. I mean, I was worshiping drugs. I put so much money. You talk about like giving offering, you know, hungum, putting that little money in the offering basket. I sure put a lot of money in that basket over there with drugs worshiping all these other things that I thought that I was told would satisfy me. But when the day came where I began to hit rock bottom, I started to cry out. Man, I was hitting rock bottom in my life. And I remember crying out thinking, man, how come this isn't satisfying me? Why aren't these things answering the deep cries in my heart? It was a no-answer situation. And Elijah sees the, the prophets of Baal choking, pretty much. 
not getting any response from their God. And he goes and he, I mean, I can't even picture what it was like, but it was probably so Moshiso, you know, probably just, <laughs> you know, like coming in and like starting to build the altar that was once broken, laying down the firewood, each wood, putting down the bull, cutting it into pieces, a familiar procedure that Prophet Elijah would have known. Putting it each down, piece by piece by piece. And then watch what he does. It says, come near me, verse 30. All the people came near him. He wanted an audience here. Because this, what was about to go down was for them. And like I said, he repaired repair the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of God came, saying, Israel should be your name. And with those stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as it would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said this, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And then they did it a second time, and he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time, and the water ran down the altar, filled the trench also with water. Not only does he set the scene, he sets the altar, but he does something crazy. He pours water, buckets of water over the sacrifice. I don't know if you guys know the science of fire, <laughs> but this is probably not a good idea to do. The moment those pieces of wood got soaked with water in the natural, it should have been impossible for them to be set aflame. Impossible. And it wasn't just like one jar. He's like, do it again. Do it again. I'll probably be like, oh, you're so cool, <laughs> Prophet Elijah. Verse 36, and at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you are Lord, our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal and let no one escape. And they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. That's a big finale. Here was this impossible situation. Elijah cries out once, Lord, show yourself. Let these people know that you are God and that I'm your servant. And whoosh, fire comes down from heaven and consumes the altar, consumes the bull, consumes the wood, consumes the stones, the dust, and even the water that was left over. Consumes every part of this sacrifice. The fire from heaven comes down. God wants to set you on fire for him. And his desire to set you on fire is to turn you to him. 
people saw the fire of God, they fell on their faces and they said, Lord, you are God. The Lord, you are God. I'm not interested in you guys coming to this retreat and having a great time and then forgetting about it the next day. I'm not interested in you guys feeling like you're connecting with God for two days and then a week later, everything goes back to the same. But I believe that God's heart for you, despite your situation, no matter how impossible what you're facing is, no matter how much water you think has been poured over your heart, God wants you to be set ablaze with a fire that does not go out. There's so many other things I want to catch your attention. And there's so many other fires I want to burn you. But one thing about God's fire that completely separates from the worldly fires is God's fire consumes us but doesn't destroy us. It's a fire that requires all of us, but it's a fire that gives us life. God wants to kill you, but he wants to make you alive. That sounds really strange. But in order to live, you must first die. And so, tonight, as we start this retreat, and as you say to yourselves, man, I want to be set on fire. I want to make it very clear. Fire will not come unless you put something out for God to set a flame. Even prophet Elijah didn't provide the fire, but you know what he provided? The sacrifice. God didn't consume nothing. He consumed the bull. He consumed the animal that was cut to pieces and laid on the altar. God wants all of you. There's no escaping that. I'm not here to tell you that God loves you and he's okay with the life that you're living if you're living in limbo. I'm not here to tell you that God loves you and it's okay to have mixture in your life. I'm not here to tell you that God loves you, but keep on sinning. Don't worry about it. I'm here to tell you God wants all of you, every single part of you, all of you to consume you fully. And I'm wondering if you're in or if you're out. I want you guys to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 1. You know, what Elijah was doing was uh, something very familiar, and it was considered a burnt offering. So we're going to go to the book of Leviticus where burnt offerings were first formally introduced And I want you guys to understand and read the meaning and the context behind what this meant. And I believe that it's going to give all of us a lot of insight on how to actually lay down what we need to lay down. Because we need help, don't we? Leviticus chapter 1. We're starting from verse 1 and we're going to go read through the whole chapter. 
Uh, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring an offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Verse 3, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. And he shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron... And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put the fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs shall be washed with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar, a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Everybody say pleasing aroma. You know, there's a bunch of offerings that were given during this time that the Israelites were uh, commanded to do. At this moment, Moses is on Mount Sinai having this supernatural, crazy encounter with the Lord. And, and God gives to him instructions for the Levitical priests to have these different types of offering. And the first offering, I think, is a very interesting and important offering to take notice of because it was the most common one that happened. And it was called a burnt offering. Everybody say burnt offering. And like we just read, pretty much this is what happens. Uh, there's three types of animals that you can give to a burnt offering. The first one is a bull. The second is a sheep or a goat. And the third is a type of bird. All right, so three types. But this first part that we're reading is, is a bull, just by example. And, and someone who wanted to give a burnt offering to God would come with a bull, and not just any bull, but their prize bull. And this bull had to be in the best condition, it had to be a male, and it had to be without blemish. It had to be the best of the best. And often they say that the age of the bull was right about the age when the bull starts earning money, meaning right before the age where the bull can start to procreate and make some more baby bulls, all right? And before the bull is large enough to actually, you know, slaughter and kill, he just... Uh, for food or for different needs. He's like right at that age, ripe, and he's untouched. This bull has not um, mated with any other, you know, an uh, animal, cow. And, uh, <laughs> and he's at this prime age. That's usually when the bulls were, you know, used for these sacrifices. So the offer would come with this bull, bring it to the temple, and watch this scenario. It's this interaction between the priests, which were the sons of Aaron, and this offer. They come with this bull, and all of a sudden, they, they bring the bull to the tent of meeting. And one of the first things that they do is they lay their hands on the bull. And usually it's the head. And when you lay your hands on the head, what's going on at that moment is you are imparting your sins onto that animal. Okay, burnt sacrifices, burnt offerings were usually for, uh, used for our sins. And it wasn't like specific sins. There were other offerings for that, but it was generally because I'm sinful, I'm going to give this offering to you, God. Okay. And the, the offer would lay his hand on the bull's head, 
and impart his sinfulness. And once the bull would, I guess, accept the impartation of sinfulness, then the offerer himself would kill the bull. Okay, it's not like, hey, here's my bull, and drop it off, peace, have a good time doing my sacrifice. This person that was about to do this offering came in fully engaged, laid his own hand over the head of the bull, knowing that that represented his sinful nature, and then killed the bull with his own hands. And then the priest would come in, take the bull's blood, and splatter it over the altar. There was this participation between the person that was offering the bull and the person and the priest that were there. And then the offerer, after the blood is sprinkled everywhere, can you imagine what that scene looks like? The offerer looks and he cuts the bull himself into pieces. And then Aaron's sons, the priests, what they do is then they get the fire ready. They put on the fire. They put the wood. And then they arrange the pieces, the head, the fat, the different parts of the body, on the wood. And there was two parts that get washed, which were the intestines and the legs. But everything gets on the fire. And the priest burns all of it on the altar. I want you guys to say all of it. All of it. There's other offerings in scripture where priests would do these kind of similar steps, but they would take a portion for themselves. Okay, so they would be able to get this part of the bull or this part of the goat or this part of the lamb. You know, they, they were, it was kind of like payment or offering to the priest for doing the sacrifice. But with this offering right here, with the burnt offering, there was nothing for the priest to get except maybe the skin, the hide. But the offering itself, the animal was fully consumed by the fire. All of it. And it says in scripture that this aroma of the animal burning was a pleasing aroma. You know, it's so interesting to hear the history about burnt offerings because when you look at what the offerer had to do, it was very involved. And one of the reasons why it was very involved, I would imagine, just to take a wild guess here, is so that that person can have a greater understanding of what was happening and the weight of their sin. They understood that this animal that was dying was taking their place, meaning that the actual punishment, the actual um, uh, consequence, thank you, should have been their own lives. But here in their place is this animal that they impart their, their wrongs to. And this animal gets cut, uh, killed, cut into pieces, and burned on the altar. All right, what does this have to do with us? We don't do animal sacrifices anymore, do we? Okay, I hope you guys are all shaking your head here. If your church does animal sacrifice, talk to me after the service, and I'll walk you through H&D because that's traumatic, all right? We don't do animal sacrifices anymore, but the spirit of what happened here is still very much evident in our lives. See, what this sacrifice represented, what this offering represented was atonement for our sins, one of the forms of atonement of our sins. And in its place, rather than a bull or a goat or a bird or a pigeon or whatever, Jesus Christ had laid his own life down to take our place just like this animal would have. Everything in the book of Leviticus and everything in this passage that we just read 
was pointing to the Christ to come. The son of God that was going to take our sins imparted unto him. And to go through the fire on our behalf. To die a death on a cross. In order to pay for the consequences that you and I owed. Now, usually when we hear the gospel message, it's like, okay, yeah, Jesus died on the cross. It's not that big of a deal. But I want you to imagine what it must have been like for this offer here to walk in, to see this animal, the animal that they raised, this animal that they purchased or whatever it may be, this, this gorgeous, beautiful animal without blemish, without spot, to lay their own hands and impart their own sins and kill it themselves. That same understanding and revelation, we need to understand with what Christ has done for us. When I tell you guys that we have to lay down ourselves on the altar, what I'm asking you to do is nothing that Jesus hasn't done for us. Jesus has first become that lamb. Lay down on that altar. In fact, John the Baptist, when he came, he said, behold, when he saw Jesus, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold. He laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for you. And many of us, our Christian walk stops there. Jesus paid the price for our sins. But tonight, I want to take us a step further than that. Because Jesus didn't just lay down his life for our sins. He laid down his life that we may lay down our lives for him. I want you guys to turn to Romans chapter 12. And we're going to look at verse 1. And I want you guys to read verse 1 together with me. Here we go. Ready? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It wasn't enough for Jesus to lay down his life for us. That wasn't the whole picture. That was the beginning. Now God has called you and I to lay down our own bodies as living sacrifices. If you guys want to experience the fire of God, you can't skip this step. Fire cannot come without sacrifice. And that sacrifice is not a portion of your heart. It's not just your fears. It's not just your worries. It's all of you. Every part of you. God wants you to lay down, to be tied down to the altar in order for his fire to consume you. Not to kill you, but to give you life. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm a living sacrifice. <laughs> you are called to be a living sacrifice. And the problem with living sacrifices is we move and we constantly try to get off the altar. 
And we want a part of, the altar, of ourselves on the altar. Here's my hand, God. Here's my elbow, but you ain't getting the rest of this. Here's my finger. Here's my toe, but you can't have all of me. When we talk about laying down our lives, I'm talking about every single part. And I'm wondering, what part have you not laid down? Because when we talk about the word sacrifice, we're talking about the word that is opposite of withholding. When you don't sacrifice, you withhold. What are you withholding today? What are you holding back today? What are you refusing to give God today? I'm wondering if there's a part of you, whether it's deception, whether it's fear, whether it's worry. I wonder if there's a part of you that you're holding back, whether it's a relationship. What are you holding back from God? We're going to start this retreat right. We got to deal with this first and foremost. You need to understand that you're a living sacrifice. And you need to understand that in order for us to lay down our lives, we have to grasp the fact that Jesus laid down his own life for us first. And that he gave everything to us in order to pay the price for us to give everything to him. We were bought at a price, folks, and it was an expensive, costly purchase for God to send his one and only son for your sins, to die on the cross, a death that was considered cursed. And in response, we're called to lay down our own lives and bear our own cross as living sacrifices. What does that mean to be a living sacrifice? Because we're not talking about altars. We're not going to set up planks of wood here and tie you guys down throughout the retreat. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? It was an act of worship, scripture says. We're called to be worshipers, but more than that, we're called to be obedient. There's a time when King Saul was in God's favor, and that began to change when he started to do things his own way. And a prophet came up to King Saul and said, listen, you can do all these sacrifices, but what use are they if you don't obey God? For God desires obedience more than sacrifice. Our idea of being a living sacrifice to God is to be obedient to him. And I wonder, where haven't we been obedient? Where's the place in your heart where God is speaking to you, pointing his desire for you? And you've been saying, not yet, no, Lord. Not this, God. I'll give you everything but this, God. This was the story of my life in college. God wanted all of me, and I wanted all of him without the cost. I wanted the luxury of the protection that God gives me, the joy that can only come from God, the peace that can only come from God. I wanted all of the good stuff, but I also wanted the drugs, and I wanted the sex, and I wanted, I wanted the, the, you know, the foolishness in the world. I wanted all of that. I wanted everything. It didn't work that way. And I remember coming to retreats just like this. And hearing messages like I'm preaching right now and literally feeling the war inside of my heart. Literally feeling the war of, oh man, just not that. Not that. God, okay, let's compromise here. Let's work together. We're in a relationship. Let's do this together. I will give you this much. And every single time, God told me the same thing. I want it all. I was like, all right, God, here's a plan. I'll go to church on Sundays from now on. And maybe, maybe I'll even join the campus ministry, even though I think they're bizarre and weird. (laughs) But I'm going to still hold on to my drugs, and I'm not breaking up with my boyfriend. 
That's all I got. That's my best offer. Every retreat, that's literally the conversation I would have with God. Oh, God, you're so good. Your love is so good. Oh, God, I love you so much, but I don't want to give you this part. And after every retreat, after all these encounters where I would feel the love of God for a moment, I'd walk out of these retreats, I'd return to my old ways in disobedience, and I'd find myself in a drought worse than the one I was in before I even went to the retreat. I didn't want to give him all. I wanted to withhold certain things because I was afraid. Who would I be without this boyfriend? What would I do without my drugs? How would I survive if I couldn't smoke? How would I live life? I don't, I don't even know who I am without those things. God, not that. I'm too afraid to give those things up. I can't give those things up. I refused. I did everything that's the opposite of sacrifice. I withheld. I shut down. And when I shut down a portion of me, the reality is I shut down all of me. And I was tormented in those years of college. Had all these crazy experiences, doing everything insane and having the time of my life. But can I tell you, when I went to sleep, I was tormented. I was not satisfied. It's like I was crying out to Baal, asking him to satisfy me, and there was no answer at all. Silence. And I remember it wasn't until I hit absolutely rock bottom when I finally decided I actually had nothing to lose. Like, my, my relationship with my boyfriend was actually very tumultuous at that point. So I was like, all right, you know what? This is easy to give up. Just take him. I don't want him anymore. <laughs> you know, drugs had become such a, a – it, it wasn't fun anymore. It was survival mode. And I was like, God, take this from me. Everything that was once pleasurable seriously turned into, it says in scripture, sin leads to death. And that's where I was at. I was at where my sinful life was literally leading me to a place of death. I just didn't even want to live anymore. So I hit rock bottom and I go back to a retreat just like this one. And I say, God, listen, have it all. Have it all. Like, hands up, have it all. All of me, take it. Just take it. Every single part, just take it. I can't take it anymore. Have it all. I can't live this life anymore. Have it all. And the moment I said that, the fire of God came upon me. And God began to burn my heart and begin to revive me. It's funny. When we die, we live. And when I died to myself in that moment, I remember coming alive for the first time in years feeling alive, not dull, not numb, not apathetic, not depressed, but alive. And I felt the fire of God begin to burn in my heart. And I remember the first thing he said to me was go to Africa. (laughs) I know we got some African sisters. Where you at? Hey. He said, go to Africa. Now, there's context behind this. It wasn't like, go to Africa. Now, y'all going to be like, heck no. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, no, when I, when I was at this retreat, there was a promo for doing missions in Africa at that time. And I remember watching this promo, and my heart was pounding. 
in my chest. And I just knew God was like, you are supposed to go on this trip. And I walked up to the pastor and actually I turned to a girlfriend next to me. And like, she like had that same look on my face and we turned to each other and we're like, we got to go. And so we run up to the pastor afterwards and we said, listen, we're interested in going on this mission trip with Africa to Africa. It was to two countries, Uganda and Rwanda. And I remember I was like, I got to go. She has to go. We got to go. Sign us up. And he was, the, the, uh, the pastor was like, it's closed. We already have too many team members. Sorry. And I was like, what? The fir- you know what I mean? Like, I have this power encounter. It's like, go to Africa. And then all of a sudden, it's like, there's no room for you. And he took a moment. He paused and he goes, you know what? Wait. I'll make room for the both of you. You guys can come. So for the whole summer, I began to train and start training up to go on this mission trip. So I went to early morning prayer. I started reading my Bible. I started praying again. I started having this relationship with God. I started pursuing him. And during that time, I was wrestling with trying to let go of my old ways. Wrestling to let go. And it was this journey that I was on that eventually took me to Korea. And I remember in Korea, I met my husband who I didn't think wasn't that, I didn't think he was that great at the time. <laughs> I was completely unimpressed. As was he with me. He was like, all right. Um, obviously that changed, but. And I remember one of the things that we went through um, as he was a prayer team leader is I began to realize that I wasn't laying everything down. I had this moment where I was like, God, take all of me. But I was still withholding certain things. And some of the things that I was withholding was my past. I was, hol- I was holding on to my shame. I was holding on to my condemnation. I was holding on to all of these um, unforgiveness. I was just holding on to all sorts of things. And I, I didn't know. It's not like I didn't want to let it go. I just didn't know how. I didn't know how to let it go. I, I, didn't want any, I did, just didn't want any part. Uh, I didn't want any part of it anymore. But I just didn't know how to let it go. And through... Pastor Christian, um, at the time, he was pretty much discipling me in the prayer team. He began to teach us how to let it go in prayer. And began to literally lay things down one by one. And I had something called a healing and deliverance session where I just confessed in front of a group of people all the sins that I've committed that I could recall. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine doing that? I just <laughs> list one by one by one by one. All of the sins I just sit in front of a group of people that I didn't even know that well. But I just wanted so desperately to be free that I didn't care the cost anymore. I didn't care about the embarrassment or the shame. I could, at that point, I was so desperate to be set free, I would do whatever. And so I went through this session, and I got set free. And I remember about a week after that, Christian, or sometime after that, Christian asked me to be on prayer team. And I accepted. I had to go through an interview with him. And after accepting on prayer team, there was one day uh, at Friday fire or Sunday service where the Friday fire team prayed over me. And I was sitting on a chair. And they're like, oh, we just want to bless you. So I just sat down. And everybody just laid their hands on me. And they just prayed for me. And all of a sudden, the fire of God came upon me. Now, I'm not talking about like, a literal fire, but it could have been because I felt like I was on fire. Like there was my temperature, my face turned bright red. 
and I, just the heat inside of my body. It was a supernatural experience where all of a sudden I, it was just fire shut up in my bones where I just began to just shake. And I was like, <laughs> like just going, like, 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 I can't even, it was uh, insane. I was just, I didn't know what was going on. And for the next month, I couldn't stop shaking. And I would be teaching at school, and I would just be like this. I'm like, all right, kids, put it behind the computer screen. Um, repeat after me, dad. Dad. Mom. Mom, like, I just, and I remember texting Christian in the middle of teaching and being like, I can't stop shaking. What's going on? And he was like, it's the fire of God. I was just so consumed. I was so hungry. I was so desperate to give all of God, uh, all of me to God. And I remember going on a 40-day uh, dinner fast. And it was during the time of Lent. And I, I stopped. I just didn't. I just wanted more of God. And I, I would pay whatever cost it would take. And so for 40 days, I didn't eat dinner. And the last week of those 40 days, the seven weeks, I didn't eat at all. And this was the first time I ever did any type of fast. I remember the only type of fast I did before that was like one meal for like the church trip or whatever, you know, a church retreat. Well, and even that one meal, I was like, oh, I'm so hungry. So you can imagine like 40, it was like 30 days of not eating and no, 33 days of not eating dinner and then seven days of just not eating at all. Okay. I was hungry. I was so hungry, but I wasn't hungry for food. I was so hungry for God. And every night I would come home and I would turn on whatever podcast I could get my hands on. And I would listen to three, four messages every night before I went to sleep. That's how I would spend my evenings. I didn't want to go out because everybody was eating. You know, that's all we do. I realized when you fast, you realize all we do is eat. And so I was like, everyone's like, oh, all right, let's go out and chill. I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not going out. I'm not interested. I'm not one of those people that look at you when I'm fasting eating. No, I'm, I walk away. I go to another place. And so I just wasn't hanging out with people that much, you know, in the evenings. And I just went to my apartment every night, just prayed, read scripture, and just listened to podcasts. And then prayed, and then read scripture, and then listened to podcasts. I was on fire for God. And I remember that the week leading up to the, the closure of Lent, we were getting ready to go to Good Friday service. And I was like so hungry physically at that time, not just for the Lord, like the soap bar looked like a hamburger, like everything, like people's faces started to look like food items, you know, like everyone just, everything around me, like I was starting to get delusional and it was so hard those seven days were so hard to go through physically, but spiritually, I was so full. Like, I was just so satisfied. I was so on fire. Like, I was on cloud. It was this crazy tension that was going on within me. My physical body was so weak, but I just, like, was so happy. And I remember my, my um, coworkers, they knew that I was fasting, and they were so confused and, like, genuinely concerned for my sanity. And like every day they're like, are you sure about this? You know, like today it's, it's pizza. You know, we get pizza like once a month. It's like, it's, and whenever you're fasting, all, always the good food comes out, you know, 
It's always when you're fasting, like someone brings donuts to the office or like it's like spaghetti day at the school. Like it's always like that. Always like that. But regardless of the cost, I, I didn't care. I didn't care. That month in my life has brought me to where I am today. That time, that season defined me. Well, I learned the call of God in my life. I learned my destiny. I learned my purpose. And I, loved, I learned above all that giving your life as a living sacrifice is the best decision that you can make. I was so afraid that giving my all to God would be detrimental to me. That if I laid it all at his feet, I wouldn't, my needs wouldn't get met. Or that I would be missing something. Or I'd be missing out on the things of the world. I was so afraid of what that was going to look like that it prevented me for years. But I remember when the time was right. And when I finally got confronted head on with my doubt. And I laid it all on the altar. I realized, oh my gosh, when you lay it all down, that's when you receive everything. When you lay it all down, that's when all of your needs are met. When you lay it all down, that's when the fear is gone. The boldness comes in. When you lay it all down, that's when you are fully satisfied. And I thought, what? How come nobody told me this? I felt like gypped the first, like, couple of days. I was like, how come nobody told me how amazing fasting could be? I always thought it was, like, terrible and torturous and tormenting. And I was never taught before coming to Korea the joy the love, the life that comes with laying down, paying a price for something. I want you guys to leave this retreat holding on. Not to the things that God is telling you to let go of, but holding on to him. I want you guys to leave this retreat set ablaze where all you can think about is how good God is and how much you want more of him. I want you to leave this retreat letting go of your old nature, of your old thoughts, of your old patterns, of your old mindsets. I want you to leave this retreat set on fire. But my question to you is, do you want it? Because if you don't, there's not much I can do. Do you want it? What do you want? Why are you here? Why did you pay your money to pay in this seat that you're sitting in and listen to this little Korean girl yelling at you for like 40 minutes? What are you doing here? Guess what? You're not going anywhere for the next two days. You're stuck here. You can try to leave, but we won't let you go. And while you are here, my encouragement to you is be fully present because God is going to begin to speak to you about things that you thought you let go, but you're holding on to. And he's going to begin to expose to you the things that you have to get rid of in order to receive more of him. God is going to speak to you through the messages, through the small groups, through your morning devotions. He's going to begin to talk to you, but you have to pay attention. You can sit here and think about everything that's going on out there and you can leave completely wasting your time and your money. Or you can be here and fully be here. Be fully present. Because God wants to tie you down on the altar as a living sacrifice in order 
for you to experience abundant life. I think it's Jason Ma who said that life isn't worth living unless you have something worth dying for. That might not be his quote, but I know he said it. <laughs> I'm like thinking, I don't know if he made that up. That's really good. Life is not worth living for unless you have something worth dying for. I'm just wondering, man, do you guys have something worth dying for? Do you understand what you have? So for the first message at this retreat, it's just simple. Simple message. What do you need to put on the altar? Are you willing to give all of yourself to God? And if you're not, why? What's holding you back? What's making you afraid? What's causing you to resist that call? I think tonight's the perfect night to start thinking about those things, confronting those things, because God doesn't want you to live a lukewarm life. He wants you to be on fire, on fire. And I'm not talking about like your temperature raising and you shaking for a month. That's just a manifestation. That's not the substance. The substance of being on fire is continually being hungry for the Lord. The substance of being on fire is impacting those around you. The substance of being on fire is getting renewed, purified. Do you want to be on fire for God? I want you guys to just close your eyes. I'm going to call Sole to come up. And I want you guys to just take some time and listen. Before you talk, before you pray, before you respond, I just want you to listen to what God is saying to you. Just close your eyes. Don't be distracted. Don't think about what's next. Don't think about anything else, but just for a moment. I want you to listen to God. And I believe that he's going to begin to just put a thought in your head or an image in your mind of just things that is holding you back. Before we start this this time together this weekend. I'm going to ask you on the first night, not the last night, to give God everything. Because to me, that's the beginning. That's the start. That's not the end. It's the beginning when we lay down 
our lives as a response to Christ who first laid down his life for us. It's the beginning. And I don't want to end the retreat with the beginning. I want to start it now with this. And I know it's in your face. And I know some of you guys don't even know how to respond to that question, but I'm going to stir it up now. I want to stir up those thoughts. Questions. So we're going to take a moment and our sister Sola is just going to, she's just going to sing a song. And as she sings, I want you guys to just listen for the voice of God. You know, I want you to listen for the voice of God, whether it's just a thought, whether it's an impression, whether it's a memory that he brings up. I want you to just pay attention. I want you to take captive every other thought that's going to try to get in the way. And I want you to just pay attention to what God is saying.
nothing stop you from seeing and tasting the goodness and faithfulness that I am. I am goodness. I am faithfulness. So my heart say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, come and touch my heart. Touch my heart, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Come and touch my heart. Oh, I want to know you Jesus, my true vine, Jesus, my 